Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going, Dave? Doing really good, Joe. How you doing? I'm doing really good. I, uh, we talked about the laptop I got last week. Yeah. Obnoxiously large, 10-pound, 17-inch laptop, and... I've used that exclusively every day since then, and I've my MacBook has just been in a cabinet, and I pulled it out to do the podcasting about an hour ago, and it feels super tiny. <laughs> More accurately, I feel super big. Like I, I have like put on forty percent Joe, and what? then just dealing with this tiny little device. Yeah. Well, what you kind of got for free was a. Uh... A brand new, relatively powerful uh, MacBook Air. Like the MacBook Air upgrade we all wanted, you got. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And I got the biggest MacBook they make, and it's tiny in comparison to the other one. That's awesome. But uh, yeah, the 17-inch screen is just an awesome form factor. Like that is just the perfect size. I haven't even used my external monitor all week. I've just been using that. And it's plenty of room for Unity developments where I don't feel like I'm crammed in the editor with all the various tabs open. I don't know. That's a good environment. Yeah, I was working on my 15-inch this week and was kind of jealous. Yeah. yeah. Especially if you're doing stuff in Xcode. It, uh, I don't know. If you're just writing code, it's fine. But as soon as you get into any of the, the uh, layout stuff, gets a little dicey well i was doing code but i needed to refer to a secondary document mm-hmm. and as soon as you're trying to do two things at once on that 15 inch screen it's doing neither of them exceptionally well mm. so i i'm not using an external display but anytime i wanted to do a multi-screen workflow last week i just put the windows mixed reality headset on and I would uh, work on the desktop and then just bring up, you know, a browser window for whatever I was referencing off to the side. And that's a pretty cool way of working. Well, I don't know if cool is the right word. <laughs> there was a, I think it was Thursday night. I spent about two and a half hours in my office just building some scenes in Unity. And we'll get into what I was building in a couple minutes. But I, I decided to wear the mixed reality headset and use the unity desktop or use the windows desktop with unity open and work in the scene editor that way and to my surprise while i'm in the windows mixed reality cliff house operating on the desktop i could run the app in unity steam vr would take over focus show me the preview of the app i could interact with it and then hit a button on the controller to get back to the cliff house and stop running the app so I stayed that way for about two and a half hours of just building two or three different uh, landscape-based terrains and didn't have to take the headset off once. Like, basically, I stopped when I had to go to the bathroom. Okay, that's pretty slick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially with that kind of... with I My only annoyance with VR development right now is just it can be kind of tedious to put the headset on and off, especially the Vive. It's a bit... Mm-hmm. clunky and for some reason i always seem to like the foam always hits my glasses and i'm real picky about things smudging my glasses but the just being able to keep the headset on the whole time is pretty awesome it'll be even better with higher res headsets in the future um so like the you know if this is something that i stick with maybe i'll pick up a samsung odyssey in a couple of months because it's got a much higher resolution and uh, it would be nice if the Vive started supporting the Windows Mixed Reality headset because I would just wear that all the time because it's got it's way more comfortable to keep on for a long mm-hmm. period of time. But yeah, it was a neat way of working. So yeah, so have, so what are you working on? So I'm working on. I really haven't touched my puzzle game at all this week, other than just like trying a few things as I thought of them. I've been working on this landscape project that I I think I mentioned last week a little bit um, when I was talking about how difficult it is to build some landscape that runs at a decent frame rate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm using a tool called Gaia, 
which is a procedural generation uh, landscape and terrain tool. But I should mention, I didn't mention it last week, um, and I realized it when I was editing the podcast. I don't mean procedural generation as in runtime. I'm not generating anything while the user is actually using the app. It's all design time stuff that I'm using. Mm-hmm. So, I've, so I'm. Uh, they've got a pretty awesome workflow set up where basically you add the you open the Gaia Manager, just a little window. You can dock it wherever, and then you add the Gaia Session component to your scene. And I'm not going to go through all the details. Um, there's a bunch of YouTube videos on this to explain it much more thoroughly. But the session thing is linked to a couple of preference files where you can define some basic settings that Gaia should use as you're making terrain and then what types of assets it should use. Uh, so you you add the session file, then you add a piece of terrain, and you add something called the stamper. And the terrain stamper can work in two different ways. You can pick a height map, which is, there's a bunch of them included. Um, which is what I've done for most of them, or you can, they've got kind of a randomized feature where you can uh, adjust some sliders on the different types of things you want in your terrain. Like, do you want to see mountains or hills? Do you want to see a waterfall or rivers or valleys? And like, just adjust the sliders. It'll, it'll try to stamp out a terrain that best fits that randomly. And those, I've had mixed results with that. Uh, I'm mostly using the height map based ones. Um, and I've been working with just the ones they provided, but I also found a pretty awesome website that I'll link. I think it was called terrain.something. I don't remember exactly what. But uh, it is a version of OpenStreetMaps where you can basically find any piece of terrain in the world and then download a height map for it, depending on the data available. And then I had to do a little bit of conversion in Photoshop to actually get it in a format that Unity would read but then import that into Unity and then use that as a height map for the terrain. So I could actually build something based on a real island in the middle of nowhere instead of an abstract island. So is this, are these height maps then just like grayscale images? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Have you tried drawing your own? Not yet. That strikes me as an awesome use for an art tool and your iPad with the pencil. Yeah. It's just shading the thing in. Um, I still remember being utterly fascinated in the making of information for the old game Mist. Mm-hmm. And they did their 3D rendering off of height maps. Yeah. And it was just, it was a graphic artist with a airbrush tool just sketching in this stuff and then pressing a button because it would take you a minute or two to generate the geometry back then. But you could press a button and it would like and extrude out the land from that height map. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, and that's exactly what Gaia is doing. I feed yeah. in the height map and then the stamper. Um, it gives me a preview of like where it's going to draw the terrain. And you can adjust the sea level, adjust the height of the terrain, or where you mm-hmm. want the stamp to actually stamp the terrain. Um, it's got some parameters that you can play with to make things, to resize things or rotate it um, or combine it with other stamps they even have like height blending so you've you've already got a terrain built and you want to add you've got a valley that you built so okay a good example you make a terrain with a river running through a valley but later on you want to add a cliff on one side of the river you could go find a nice cliff based height map and then blend that in with the first one that you did okay that's pretty slick yeah it's really really cool so when you're ready to stamp you just stamp that into the terrain and this is just a regular Unity terrain. There's no funky formats. There's no proprietary stuff. It's just working. It's just automating the workflow of actually using these default terrain objects. And then the next part of the workflow is actually doing the texturing. So um, it uses a system called spawners where you add, there's a bunch of default spawners that come with it or you can configure your own. But basically a spawner is a, a game object that is configured with some of those settings files to use the texture one in particular to use textures. And you can define, just like when you're making a material, how those textures appear. Um, In this case, it's just an array of textures and then you can define where they appear on the terrain. So rather than hand painting in the terrain, um, 
you can just decide to do it all based on height or just various other conditions and how they blend together. Um, so like their default uh, terrain spawner comes with like sand at the bottom, then a grassy area, then a rocky grassy area, and then a rocky, a rocky area. And then uh, you basically drag that in, adjust whatever parameters you want with it, and then hit spawn, and it will go through and texture your entire terrain in no time. And um, it's pretty awesome. Like the default textures are, you know, they're fine. They're not something I would, I'm going to ship with, and I don't think they're intended that way. Um, but they're definitely good for getting up and running. And then the uh, the same kind of workflow, the spawner workflow, they built a version of it for um, grasses, like clustered grasses and coverage glass grasses, which I'm not really using because that's kind of a frame rate killer. They've got the same <laughs> thing for trees. So you can make you know, a couple of trees here and there, or you can make entire forests. Um, and then as you're using these spawners, they're actually associating these things with the terrain. So if you click on the terrain game object and you go through the various Unity terrain tools, you see all the textures that the texture spawner was using there. You can still go through and hand modify stuff and you can make it, you can use all the uh, you know, sculpting tools for the terrain to make modifications. So this doesn't really stop you from any creativity out like with the terrain tools. It's just a, a good way of like, give me something to work with other than a big flat area. Um, but you know, it'll tie in all your trees and your other game objects. I think the most impressive part, and it's a feature that I'm not currently using, but you can load in game objects with it, including entire buildings or even entire villages. And as it spawns out those objects, it'll look for flat terrain. And if you set your game object prefabs up correctly, where they're, so you've got a little a wooden shack, if you lower it just a little bit below um, the ground level, then when Gaia is spawning it, it will place it in such a way that it really looks like it's built into the terrain. So it's not, <laughs> it's not gonna like pop it onto an angle on an angled surface. It's gonna put the house straight even on a slight angle. Okay. It's really slick. So, Neat, so what are you making? I mean, um, terrain-wise. So the initial idea, I was trying to make some kind of wide open sweeping areas. And I talked about how that was a bad idea last week. Um, <laughs> just the areas were too big. Like the default <laughs> terrain size in Gaia is like two kilometers by two kilometers. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was kind of crummy. Yeah. So I scaled the idea down. I thought about doing like an indoor version of those. Like maybe you're in some kind of lab or habitat. Um, but what I decided on instead was to do an island version. So it's a series of islands with different terrains and different themes that I'm working on. And I spent basically working with Gaia, I'm calling it Gaia and Friends. There's three other assets I'm working with as well um, called CTS, uh, Enviro, and Aquas. Um, but basically I spent the week working with those four tools and they all kind of, you can use them independently, but they all kind of work with Gaia and have integrations built in. Um, and I spent the entire week, I think I made 35 scenes throughout the week, of just varying complexity and just trying out different things. Um, and that this was all pretty much just sandbox development. So this was, you know, protos if prototyping is taking an idea and finding out if it's fun or if it's achievable or possible, this is kind of a step before that of like, what what are the tools that are available to me and what can I do with them? And then can I, once I learn how to use them, then I'll go into the prototype phase and see if I can actually build what I have in mind for that. So that's kind of what I did most of the week is I created a sandbox project and just made tons and tons of islands of various size and complexity. I played with all kinds of settings, um, eventually found some good ways to optimize Gaia for basically mobile settings and the mobile settings translated pretty well for VR. There's a couple of things I need to tweak. Um, and then just, you know, trying different things, trying to make different looking environments. Um, 
when I got like Gaia has integration with Unity's built-in environment assets, so it can add water to the scene, but Unity's water looks really quite bad and performs quite bad. <laughs> so I found an asset called Aquas that looks much better and runs much better. Uh, it's not as customizable as I want, so I may replace it with something else. Um, like I can't really make I can't really make the water respond to wind in the way that I want, or make certain kinds of waves. But, okay. uh, so then one of the other assets I'm using is called Enviro, which basically, sure, you can add a skybox and add a sun, set those things up yourself, or you can add Enviro or a couple other assets out there that fill a similar role um, where it will basically create a, I don't know, like a, a, a live environment. You can define how long the day and night cycle is. You can define... You know, should it just stay one time a day or should time pass? Um, should the weather change? Should it be based on a particular day or season of the year? Should it be based on, should like the position of the sun be based on a current um, geo coordinate somewhere on the earth? Or do you want it to be more abstract? So I could set it up right now to mimic the exact sunset of where I am and leave it at 24 hours and actually run a scene that would follow the sun exactly as it is where we are. Or I can make it something more abstract, like a, you know, a, a day takes five minutes and a night takes five minutes and run through it that way. So wire that then into your office render mm -hmm. and you can look outside the window even when the window is closed. <laughs> Exactly. Now, does let me guess. CTS adds live updating weather. So if it's raining outside, <laughs> no. you'll actually see the rain. No, CTS is an, an advanced shader and texturing utility. It's made by the same people who made Gaia. Um, don't think I didn't think about hooking it up to a weather API, though. <laughs> um, that's maybe a future project. But so CTS is probably the most complicated of the tools, but it allows really sophisticated and kind of minute details over the textures. So Gaia can put textures on the terrain, but there's not a lot to do with it once they're there. Um, whereas with CTS, you can kind of replace those with a different array of textures, I think up to 16, I think is what it said, um, and really control how they blend together from one texture to another, but also like control the level of detail, uh, sizes of them and how they blend at different distances. There's a good way of uh, adding something they call geo, um, where you can make it look like, so say you've got a big rocky cliff, you can add a geo component to it, which is basically just a, a very thin uh, vertical asset with a bunch of lines on it that you can kind of stretch out across the texture or across that region and it has that texture and make it look like it's got different layers in the rock over time things like that um cts has just a ton of features for making things look really really good and some of it is more than i can take advantage of in vr um in fact all of these tools have more than i can actually take advantage of in vr uh, it's pretty incredible what you can do if you just leave the VR headset unplugged and make some scenes that aren't <laughs> targeting VR. It's, it's just awesome. Um, now with VR in mind, it obviously performance becomes much more of an issue. And I was working, doing all my work with the Windows Mixed Reality headset because I've been uh, spending a lot of time in a co-working place. And I was getting pretty good frame rates all week. Um, I think consistently around 110 frames Per second the occasional drop down to 80 or 90 but holding it pretty high and you know once in a while i would add something to the scene like add too many trees and do that dip you just like something like that and then uh i plugged in my steam vr headset this morning and ran the app and i was getting much worse results i was lucky to hold 90 frames a second some scenes were dropping down to 50 which is definitely not good. Um, but even with that 50 frames a second, it still looked really freaking good. <laughs> um, it, you just didn't want to move your head very much. No, not really. 
which is fine for this type of thing. It's not fine to ship a product like that. This is not really optimized at all at this point. And I've got a developer I can go to to get help with that type of stuff. Um, but, you know, throwing these scenes in the Windows Mixed Reality headset all last week, they looked cool as I was building them. But then having taken the weekend off and jumping back into it on the Vive this morning, it's the first time that something that I made in VR like really impressed me where I went to just test a scene to see how a change looked and I ended up spending 15 minutes just watching the passage of time and the weather patterns in the scene <laughs> and just like being blown away like this is awesome this is actually quite compelling nice so I don't know these tools are really great there's they kind of make me want to do some non-VR stuff with them I'm not sure if I've got any good game ideas with them, but maybe make some videos, um, things like that. There's all kinds of advanced rendering stuff that Unity has available. It may just be fun to make some nice, you know, picturesque landscape-based videos as a bit of a hobby. Um, I can't think of any, like, I don't really want to make another, you know, first-person shooter in a big open world type of thing. Um, I don't know. Do you have any ideas for a game, particularly a <laughs> VR game that would be fun, or an, or non-VR game that would be fun in a huge open area? I'm I'm sure I'd come up with dozens if I had a little bit more prep time. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, right now. Yeah. Um, the non-violent version of Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. So it's hide and seek mm -hmm. or <laughs> um, <sighs> yeah, I think battlegrounds is probably the thing that this, these assets are most similar to. Like okay. I saw a couple of videos, a couple of screenshots and like plenty of people playing that recently. And I saw a video of it yesterday and realized like the terrain assets and particularly like just the the game objects the shacks you can hide in like all this stuff i can make i can reproduce that stuff almost exactly with these tools like i can't make their game mechanics i have no idea how to make those fighting mechanics and make a game that interesting but in terms of the environment you're playing in i can totally do all of that yeah. with these tools it's pretty cool i guess i haven't thought about it a whole lot because neither you nor i was particularly interested in doing anything like, up until this point, you've been generally avoiding anything vaguely photorealistic like the plague. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and now you're doing a lot of stuff with a lot of fidelity to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are... They're approaching photorealistic. Um, there's definitely still a step back. Like, you can make photorealistic stuff with these tools on the desktop with the VR stuff. Yeah. It's, it's still a step back. Um, it's kind of like that mount, mountain scene in the lab where like at first glance it looks really good but then you start really looking at it and you can see edges everywhere and yeah yeah, it, it falls apart pretty quickly if you really start looking at it um, but with these tools the scenes I've been working on have been relatively realistic looking but I can with CTS in particular being able to take a small number of textures and significantly modify them with all these various effects, I can make some really alien looking stuff as well. So things that look um, high quality, but completely unearthly, which is something I'm pretty excited to get into as well. A, a good example, so the the red island, I'm making islands just based on colors. So right now I've done green, red, and white in the actual project that I'm working on. Okay. I've done about 30 others, but uh, been focusing around those three islands. And the red one is basically, I just took the the sand asset. There's actually a couple different sand textures that came with CTS, and they had kind of a real fine one and a more rocky one. And they were both a light yellow color, just kind of any generic desert sand texture. And I added those to a, I think it's called a CTS profile. And then I added, I found some nice rocky stuff that could be good for cliffs. And I added, there was uh, two different ones of those. And I added those 
to the same profile. And then I just significantly mod modified the texturing, uh, particularly how the normal maps look and the, the colors, and made it much more of a, almost a Martian red color of the sand and a much darker brown um, color for the rocks. And it just came up with like, I'm pretty sure there's nowhere on earth that looks anything like this, <laughs> but with like making the sky a little bit bluer and the, the redness of the sand, it looked really cool. And right. I didn't have to get any new textures or anything like that to pull that off. I don't know. There's a lot of red rock stuff out in New Mexico and or Arizona. Mm -hmm. But not in the middle of the ocean. But, well, it's sure. Sure. <laughs> so you got all this cool stuff, but you don't know where you're going with it yet. I do. This is a project I'm doing with another game developer. Um, so I'm meeting with them later this week to kind of show them the prototype and just get, you know, do a bit of brainstorming and figure out what next steps are. Um, this isn't, I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to say about it. So I'll try to be vague, mm -hmm. but uh, I don't think this is really a game per se as a VR experience. Okay. Um, but it's definitely, the project is beneficial to me because I'm able to learn a bunch of stuff that I wouldn't have learned otherwise and then kind of have a senior developer to report to and get advice from um, as well as a larger development team of like people who can do shader work, people who can make textures, things like that. So if this project becomes what we think it's going to become, I'll, I'll be basically code monkey or you know, level design monkey or a combination of those um, doing the grunt work, but still having like people who actually know what's going on that I can go to for help as well as people who can make assets that are way better at than I am. So, you know, I'm using Gaia right now, but all of this may go right out and just be replaced by stuff that we do by hand. The difference with Gaia, at least for me, is I can make good looking terrain. Whereas like trying to draw terrain by hand, everything that I made just looked like somebody was just dragging a mouse around a screen making terrain. <laughs> I just couldn't get anything realistic. Um, now I could probably, since I'm scaling it down to islands, I could probably do a better job by hand than when I was trying to do the open world stuff, but I don't know. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll leave it ambiguous for now. And then, uh, this week, I still have some performance stuff I want to do with the scenes that I have to try to get them running a little bit better. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that because I've got another developer I can go to that can help me with optimizing them. But um, particularly, I want to see if I can pick up some of those frames on the vibe and uh, just make it run a little bit smoother. I may have to just kind of scale back some of the assets. Like right now, I've got pretty detailed clouds floating through the sky depending on the weather. I may have to scale those back to the kind of the more 2D version of them, um, reduce the rain, snow, stuff like that. And uh, I don't know. The other thing that I'm going to work on this week, though, is mainly around user interface. And there's a couple things I want to do with it. I started working with Steam Navigation in Steam VR, and have you done anything with Steam VR yet? Not yet. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the uh, Steam VR plugin the last couple of weeks. One of the components that they have available is the Steam VR load level component, which there are other people that can explain why this is necessary better, but basically changing scenes in Unity can basically, one when you're swapping one level out for another, you're loading a bunch of stuff in RAM, um, and it can end up just costing you a bunch of frames. And on the desktop or on a mobile, you're really not gonna notice that or care. You can just show a loading screen and get over it. Where in VR, if you're running at 90 frames a second, all of a sudden you drop to 40 frames a second for two seconds, that can make a lot of people sick. Right. Um, so 
SteamVR has this component called SteamVR Load Level that basically animates you out of the current scene into the SteamVR compositor, which is that kind of empty round area that you see. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can dump you in there or it can dump you in a custom version of that that you can set up for yourself. So you can make basically any skybox type of looking thing and throw them into a custom environment. So like when you're playing the lab and they chop you into that cutscene with, uh, you know, a couple of the stick figures with clipboards, like there's nothing moving there. It's just a loading screen. That's one of those. And then uh, the way the way that I'm calling this couldn't be more ridiculous, but it has a a little trigger checkbox. So it's got a ton of components. Like, what level do you want to load? Just pass in a string, which I'm not crazy about. Pass in the <laughs> compositor image. How quickly do you want to do the fade in, fade out, stuff like that? And then there's a little checkbox at the bottom of like trigger on enable. So the way that <laughs> I went about setting this up is. I made a game object for the scene that I want to load, or I made a game object for the level loader, put the scene I wanted to load on it, and then disabled that game object, and then made a an interactable object. So I just used a couple of spheres for now. And I, so I made a sphere and I attached the SteamVR interactable object on it and piggybacked on its little event um, parameter. So it's got a spot in there where you can add custom events. So when the player starts interacting with this object, do something. And then I just dragged in the level loader game object. And so when when the user picks up this object or interacts with this object, then enable that game object and that'll trigger the level scene transition. So it's actually really stupid. Um, you just walk up to a sphere and pick it up and then you're in a different scene. But uh, So it's not very graceful, <laughs> but it totally works. Um, I need to replace all of that with user interface this week with uh, something besides that because it's, it's, it is kind of weird, like just picking up a sphere and wag- wagging it around and then you just fade out into a different scene. Hmm. Catch the bouncing ball. Yeah. So uh, I think user interface is the other topic. Um, I haven't really dived into it yet. I mentioned previously that I wasn't crazy about 2D interfaces in VR apps. Right. But I think I think I have to backtrack a little bit. I guess I'm still not crazy about them, but I see the necessity um, under some circumstances, especially on desktop VR apps. If you build your your user interface the right way, the user can still use that user interface with their mouse you know, either in the Windows mixed reality environment, they can use their mouse to interact with it, or if they're, they just haven't put their headset on yet and they want to, you know, select the right settings. Mm-hmm. Um, if you use the UI tools, you can do it that way. Where if you go the route that I was thinking of, like making 3D objects and kind of hand making the UI, um, you kind of lose that ability or you end up making two versions of it, which I'm not crazy about. Gotcha. So the flat UI can function as a a bridge between interfaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I may have been, if I had gone the way that I wanted to go, I probably would have made a whole bunch of extra work for myself down the line because I would, would probably have to end, I would probably have to add 2D UI anyway later just for the desktop stuff. So I need to start learning about that this week. Um, don't really even know where to start. I know SteamVR has a couple of UI components floating around, but I don't know what they do yet. I will say that the uh, <laughs> trying to get a reference to the application button was a bit of a pain. So the application button is the button right above the trackpad on the Vive controller. Right. And you know, it's what you can use to bring up a menu. Um, there's a couple of different ways to work with the Vive controllers in the SteamVR SDK. And the the more easy of those, if you're not using the SteamVR Interaction Toolkit, is to add a camera prefab to your scene and then 
add some empty game objects and attach a SteamVR tracked controller op component to each of those. And then on that component, you can write a mono behavior class that can get that component and get the inputs from those and just do event listeners. That doesn't work if you're using the interaction toolkit prefab. They have a player prefab that they give you that's all set up for teleporting and the interactable stuff, but they forgot about that button. They didn't give you a way to access that. <laughs> and then that using the tracked component, or the, the uh, SteamVR tracked motion controller or whatever it's called, that doesn't work on the hands. Like there's a different class you have to add to it. And uh, I haven't got it working with event listening yet. I've got it working right now in a dummy script doing it uh, on the update method. Like if on update, if you hear this button being pushed, then do this thing, which is not optimal. I don't really want to be pulling for a single button all of the time. <laughs> okay. But yeah, that was, it, it was particularly ugly because I was writing this code on Friday at the co-working place with the Windows Mixed Reality headset. And they, the Steam VR bridge application doesn't seem to have mapped that button, the application button in Steam VR on the Vive to the button that I think it should be on the Windows headset. Um, so it may be just a different mapping in Unity. I need to see if I can find that, but I don't know, it doesn't work. So I'm writing all this code and nothing would work, nothing would work. I can get the trigger working, I can get the trackpad working, but I just couldn't get that button to work. Then I plugged my Vive in here and it worked first try. So I'm like, yeah, this, I'm just missing something with that button, whatever that's called on those controllers. So speaking of continuously polling for a single button just to see if it gets clicked. <laughs> nice segue. How was that? How was it? You like that segue? I just made that one up. Um, I was writing some Unity code this week. And I've got this, apparently this weird habit of always using programming environments for something other than what they were originally intended for. Mm -hmm. um, in the last week or so, I've been writing a lot of... Uh, kind of web-based code using Visual Studio Code. Okay. They're kind of uh, Microsoft's cross-platform code editing environment. It's got a lot of nice little hooks for different uh, web environments and things like that. And I was getting a weird... like I, was, I started out just writing on the laptop, and then I was writing enough code that it made sense to attach a full keyboard and a mouse to it. So I dig around, and I, I'm a big fan of the um, uh, Kensington Expert Mouse trackball. And I've got two or three of them scattered around the house in various states of repair. <clears throat> and I plug this thing in and start using it, and everything's great. And then I noticed a weird behavior where I would go to drag an object um, from one place to another. Uh, for example, a I'm trying to open a file, and so I bring up the open dialog and then drag the file out of the desktop, drop it into there, and that sets the path. Because sometimes when you're working in these code environments, you can get some weird pathing. It was just easier to physically find the thing and drag it over. And the file would drop short of where I wanted it to. Hmm. In some cases, drop and pick up something else. Like weird and then sometimes that behavior would result in entire almost context shifts so i was dragging to select a function that i wanted to duplicate and create a variant of because i'm just exploring some code and i would get halfway done with my drag and or, or dragging to select text and suddenly i've picked up text and I'm dragging it elsewhere hmm. and for whatever reason Visual Studio Code doesn't seem to pay attention to the escape key so to cancel a, a text drag of that variety so the only way to do it is just to go ahead and let go of the text in some completely random and horrible place and then undo <laughs> rather than just going escape don't cancel this drag please stop doing this um, 
And I just couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. Like, am I hitting a button or, or what is happening? And I decided that I was pretty sure it was happening from the mouse button. That any of this could really be explained by the mouse button just momentarily not being clicked, but then reclicking. And so my drag was being interrupted, but in the interruption, it would drop and then pick up again. But I needed a way to prove it. Like, is this really happening or am I just confused somehow and it's some other thing that's happening? And so I cracked open Unity. It's like, I need to write an application that can just sit there and constantly pull the mouse button. Hmm. And so I can start a drag, and then when the drag, I'll I'll just be able to track state changes, even if the button itself didn't move. Yeah. And so I wrote a Unity, or, or made a Unity game, threw in a single game object, attached a script to it that on update would notice if the state of the mouse button changed. And anytime the state of the mouse button changed, it would log. So button down, button up. And I could just sit there and I could start the game and start a drag from nothing. I mean, just click somewhere in the game screen and move the mouse around a little bit. And relatively often you click down and it just, it's fine. Everything's, it says button down and there's no button ups at all. And then every once in a while, there'd just be this flurry of five or six state changes. Hmm. Like drag and then up, down, up, down, up, down, down. Oh, okay. Let's drag the mouse around a little bit more. Then it would up, down, up, down. Well, crap. But now I had a test rig. Yeah. And I thought at one point that I had solved it, that it was actually in the drivers for the mouse, that something was going wrong there. Because when I uh, uninstalled the drivers for the mouse, rebooted the machine, got back into the app, and tried the same test, it wasn't flickering. Hmm. So I was like, ta-da! This is a solvable problem, and I was very happy. Until I did a bunch of other stuff with the computer and then started noticing that even using the default drivers, it would happen. So, yeah. So, I haven't actually solved the problem, but I was fascinated by the idea of using uh, Unity as a hardware diagnostic tool. Yeah, and particularly, it's it's funny that you went to Unity instead of a number of other tools at your disposal. The first place you went was to Unity. Yeah. I mean, it was just for for that particular kind of hardware monitoring, everything that I needed was right there and pretty easily accessible. Yeah. Um, it was always possible that the problem was engaging at a level where it wouldn't show up during an update. And I'd have to go to event-based tracking. Mm-hmm. You know, actually noticing the up and down rather than just polling 60 times a second and noticing the change. But nope, it totally spotted it. Um, so new, non-standard use of the uh, Unity tools. Yeah, I like it. And I can't tell you how many times I've used FileMaker to develop something for the web or vice versa. I used FileMaker heavily when I was developing Random Arrow. Mm-hmm. It's just like using other development tools for things they're not really meant to be used for to speed up other parts of development or my workflow yeah i'm just i'm kind of a tools junkie mm-hmm. i, I yeah, like I tools <laughs> so yeah at some point i am going to end up with something in the unity asset store that helps developers do something i mm-hmm. i know me I, i'm gonna keep making the same mistakes over and over again so yeah i think you should, i think you should go uh, join the VRTK open source project right away. Keep that alive. <laughs> so I can use it. I don't I no. Please please no. It's only like five APIs you have to maintain. <laughs> I'm sure that'll be very easy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, just just start working on it and grind my way through. Yep. So this isn't much of a topic, but it's kind of a something that I found interesting that I thought you would like. Unity released a tool in beta this week called Unity Hub. Have you heard about this yet? I haven't. So it is a standalone app that allows you to manage very different installs of Unity. So you can have lots of different versions installed at different locations on your computer. And I just thought you would like that. I do. I like that. I do. I've been concerned about trying to keep multiple machines on the same Unity versions and trying to keep my environments similar and... Sometimes it's helpful to be to be able to get yourself stuck on an older version. Mm-hmm. And but you also need to be able to try out the new version and do a test conversion and things like that and see what's going to break in your project and if there's any way to ameliorate that and doing those kind of controlled transitions is going to be way easier if we've got a way to manage multiple installations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you can do it now. It's a little weird. Um, Basically, whenever an update comes out to Unity, the update overwrites your previous version if it's installed at the default location. But you can, like if you're going from 2017.2 to 2017.3, you can just install 2017.3 as a clean install and pick a different directory, and then you can have both versions installed. But if you just use the updater... Gotcha. that pops up, it will always overwrite the previous version, which I'm not crazy about. So this app just streamlines that. It also comes with some new uh, sample projects and a way to add sample content to your projects. Just like the project browser now, where you make a new project and you know you can define 2D or 3D. They're they've got a new version with their uh, light render. They've got a VR template that. I played around with with the beta version of 2018.1 and they have a new rendering pipeline or it's called the scriptable rendering pipeline and they made a version of that called the lightweight render and they made a version of that and they made a VR project using that with the lightweight renderer and uh, didn't work at all for what I'm using. all of the shaders so you have to kind of make your shaders comply with this new render and i'm using a ton of shaders with cts and obviously none of them have had a chance to update for this yet so everything in the scene was just that missing material pink i don't know if you've seen that when you're missing something like oh just bright pink that'll be noticeable (laughs) um wow yeah no that was uh, always something that i liked in um unreal engine is that there didn't even seem... I mean, there's probably a way to make it so that when you do an update, it goes into the same location. But by default, every version of Unreal Engine that you install is independent. Yeah. And you can even, like, update an old version in a point release to, like, everything was separate. So it was install and delete old, or delete old and install if you're short on space, but... Those were two separate operations that were always discrete, which I kind of liked. Yeah, and their project browser always showed the version number for the project. Mm-hmm. I like that too. So I think this tool kind of fills the same space of that uh, Epic Launcher, whatever it's called. Right. I will have to check that out. Yeah. It's still early now, but it's totally working. I think that's pretty much all I have this week. But I can I can dribble on for another hour about how awesome <laughs> landscape and terrain is. But uh, I don't think anybody wants to hear that. The the after show that part helps with uh, with visual aids. Mm-hmm. What you want to do is give a slideshow from your your travels. No, I need to uh, make a video sometime this week if I get the chance. I just need to do like a screen capture video and throw it on YouTube or something. Because uh, it's, I mean, these tools are not cheap. I think I paid, but they're not expensive either. Like for all four of them, it was under 200 bucks. Okay. And being able to make what I can make with it for under 200 bucks is it's just absurd. <laughs> um, 
so yeah it's just definitely stuff that other people should check out and there's like gaia as the main tool just integrates with about 15 or 18 other tools uh-huh. so like i'm using aquas but there's two or three other water assets that you can work with there's two or three other like sky and weather assets that you can work with so lots of different options yeah i just i don't know i discovered that i really like making places and just been doing that all week to the point where i probably spent 70 hours in unity last week and i think i spent two hours playing nintendo switch wow where like the one time i sat down at the, at the sat down on the couch with the switch i think wednesday evening and spent about 15 minutes playing Zelda. and like nope going right back to unity yep, got another idea yeah, I've been doing that with Go, which is unfortunate because it means that I'm I'm losing Zelda muscle memory very, very quickly. Go, the programming language, not the board game. Correct. Yeah, these are uh, tough problems to have, man. <laughs> I I remember being a small child and experiencing a sensation known as boredom. Yeah. And I, boy, it's been a long time since I've been actually bored. Yeah. I don't, I don't really have that. There's too many things I want to learn. Different APIs to try, different assets to try, different types of projects to make, and got a list of books and games. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Not nearly enough time. There's not enough time for me to be vaguely competent competent in all the things that I would like to be competent in, much less the things that I would like to be really good at. Yeah. I mean, just in Unity development itself, I could spend a a decade getting up to speed on all the various workflows, and I could be moderately decent at each of them, or I could pick a couple and try to become really good at them. What have we gotten ourselves into, Joe? I mean, I guess the nice side is we do have the VR filter. So there's there's a lot of stuff that you can do in Unity, but if you filter it through the VR lens, um, it does scale back the things you can actually use. So I'm not going to be using uh, the uh, video rendering stuff that they're making, the Atom videos. I'm not going to be using that anytime soon. Lots of stuff. But uh, I don't know. I just want to keep making stuff. Making stuff is fun. Mm-hmm. Let's go make some more stuff, Joe. Okay. Well, that's our show for today. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm VRHermit underscore Joe. Thanks for listening.